Well, one of the things that is critical for any person to have as they go through life is a friend. And when I say a friend, I mean a really good friend, not, not just someone you're friendly with, not just someone that you spend kind of casual time with, but the kind of person who's there for you when you most need it. In fact, it could be said that perhaps a definition of a true friend is somebody who sticks it out even through the most difficult kind of trial. Oftentimes, when you look back in your lives, if I were to ask you to remember right now the hardest season of your life, and then ask you who is your best friend, it is very likely that the person you would call your best friend is the one who'd walked through that difficult time with you. Today, we get to start the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And if you've ever read through it, you're probably not at all surprised that I would by talking about the need for a really good friend to be there through times of trouble. If you have your Bibles, you can open to the book of Ruth this morning. It's the eighth book in the list of all the Bibles from the beginning to the end. It's eighth in order in the Old Testament. It's one of only two books in the entire Bible that's named after a woman. This one, of course, Ruth, and the other is Esther in the Old Testament. Although the book itself does not identify the author, Jewish tradition claims that Samuel is the one who wrote down the story of Ruth. It's a short story. It's only about 85 verses long. We're going to go through it pretty quickly. I expect it'll take four to five weeks for us to get through. Narrative-type stories in the Old Testament, I think we can move a little quicker. This most likely takes place around 1100 B.C. This is more than 1100 years before Jesus was born and lived on this earth. It was just a few generations before the time of King David, famous king known for, as in his youth, slaying the giant Goliath. And contrary to most other Old Testament books, there are only two nations mentioned in the entire story. That's Israel and Moab. In fact, the way that Moab is pointed to, it's not even really called or referred to as a nation. We're going to see in a few minutes here, even the word country of Moab isn't the word for nation. It's actually the word for field, like out in the country. The reason this matters is because it really doesn't try to give us a giant, huge, arcing, political diatribe with the list of kings and wars and battles. It really hones in on a practical, personal story. Rather than a history lesson, the author intends to show us a story that plays a significant part in the greater narrative of the whole Old Testament. Today, we're going to read through pretty much most of the, the first chapter together, we draw out some observations, and then I want to point to a few themes that we're going to see throughout our time in the book of Ruth. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into the verses we're covering today. Father, this morning, we need your help. We need your guidance through this word. Lord, prevent us from error. Keep us true, help us be clear, help me, Lord, be helpful as we walk through these things. God, there's so much in every word of scripture that we can be helped by. Lord, we ask that as we walk through this today, for those who have a particular area of their life that would be well served by this passage, we'd be able to soak it in. That this would be a start of a longer, deeper study throughout the Old Testament and particularly through this book that would help us. Help us in our lives today. Help us to think more deeply about you and ultimately, Lord, to give you more worship because of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're gonna be in the first 18 verses today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. In this quick intro, just these first two verses, we already get a bit of the who, the when, and the where to kind of dial us in to what's going to be talked about in this story. It starts with, in the days when the judges ruled. This was the period of Israelite history. After God's people had taken possession of the promised land, after Moses, after the time of Joshua and the conquest of the land, but it was before they had a king. This is a period of time that lasted about 400 years, not an insignificant period of time, longer than the U.S., than the United States has been a nation. But in this period of time, it was not looked upon as a time of nobility and wisdom and good behavior and righteousness from the people of God. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you were to read through the book of Judges, you wouldn't see Ruth. She doesn't show up in the book of the Judges, although she falls sometime in that time period, likely towards the end of that time period. But what we know about it is it was a time when the people determined for themselves what was right and what was wrong. In fact, it didn't even seem like there was one entity, it certainly wasn't a king, who gathered people together in unison in agreement about what was right and wrong, but each individual subjectively tried to determine what was right and wrong and lived according to those things. Now, as you might imagine, in that time, then what happened was that people lived wickedly. That's the nature of our hearts. So in this time when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This is all we get. We don't know what the famine was caused by specifically, but it's likely that this famine is a judgment of God on the people during this time period. The reason I think this is probably the case is because over and over and over again in the book of Judges, God sees the people act wrongly and he judges them. He, he brings some way to shake them to the reality of their sinfulness, typically giving them over into the hands of their enemies. I think that'd be likely to think that that could be the case here. Famine is oftentimes considered and thought of as a judgment in the Old Testament. But admittedly, it doesn't say that here. It just tells us this is what happened. Now, it was not uncommon for people to move to new lands during the time of a famine. Ruth is only the eighth book in the list of the Old Testament. It might be the ninth in the order of the chronology of the Old Testament. But already to this point, we have a handful of accounts of people doing this exact thing. Leaving their nation, their country, their land of heritage, of origin, going to another, more prosperous place to weather out the famine. Typically, the plan is to return back. The patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each had this exact occurrence during a famine. They left their land in order to find relief. So there certainly is not an unprecedented significance of what we see take place in the life of Ruth. And her, her, or excuse me, the knife of Naomi and her family. They come from Bethlehem. They come from Bethlehem. Yeah, that's right. That, that Bethlehem that we think of that comes to mind when we, we hear of that. The Bethlehem where Jesus was born, where Herod killed the infants trying to weed out the new king of Israel. 
It's six miles south of Jerusalem. It's in the land of Judah, the, the area that was allotted to the tribe of Judah. And it's distinguished by being called Bethlehem and Judah, because there was one other Bethlehem up in Zebulun. It was the Bethlehem near Galilee. This was the Bethlehem of Judah. It was that particular one. Now, Bethlehem's going to continue to play a role throughout this story. So if you, have, as a Christian, start thinking like, ooh, Jesus, Bethlehem, ooh, there's some significance there. There definitely is, and that's where this is going to eventually go for us. So they leave from the land of Israel. They leave from the tribe of Judah's allotment. They leave from Bethlehem, and they go to Moab. They go to Moab. Moab was a landscape that was south and to the east of the land of Israel. It was a place that was on the other side of the Dead Sea. It would have been about 45 miles as the crow flies from Bethlehem to the edges of, of this particular land of Moab. But it was more likely that going around the sides of the, the lake, they almost certainly didn't cross it, uh, would have been closer to about a 60-mile journey away from them. Now, Moab had long been an enemy of Israel, all the way back to the days of Moses. And even before, we hear Moab not being considered a worthy, good nation. They'd caused trouble for Israel on many different occasions, some notable ones, Balaam, Balak. You might see some of these Old Testament stories if you want to study them on your own to see the way Moab treated Israel prior to this story. And the people we see here are Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Malan and Chilion. That's where the story is going to begin talking about. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Many Old Testament narratives, just stories that we read, don't give judgment in the story like we might want. So oftentimes, things are just dropped. Things are just said, and we're like, oh, is that something we're supposed to go do? Is that something that's good? Oftentimes it doesn't say, it just tells us the events of the story to a particular end. I think this is one of those places. Because one of the first things that might come to the mind of a reader of the Old Testament is, is it right? Is it good? Was it a righteous act for these men to take Moabite wives? Now, it doesn't specifically say because, again, it's just, pre it's just describing things, not prescribing what to do. But should these men, should... Chilion and Malan, should they have taken these Moabite wives, these Gentile women, to be their wives? I personally think that it seems unlikely that these men were honoring God in marrying these women. There's, there's a reason for this, why I'm spending some time here that we'll see later today. Commentators throughout history have looked at the same thing and wondered the same things that I'm bringing up right now. Was it, is the author telling us this so that we see that there is something negative happening or something positive, or just is he stating it? Commentators have noted at least five reasons why it is that they might not be honoring God in their decision to marry these women. Number one, previously, Israelite men mingling with Moabite women lead to God's judgment. That's the precedent set. So let me read for you Numbers 25, 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the Bible began to whore with the daughters of Moab, which led to the anger of the Lord being kindled against Israel. So if, if these guys were to think back into history of a time that this had happened, where men were mingling with the women from the, from the Moabites, was it a good thing? No, it was a really awful thing. It actually brought the judgment of God on the people of Israel. Second reason, 
because of that past kind of judgment, Moabites could not be considered members of this Old Testament church. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And we'll revisit this idea as we get closer to the end of the book. In chapter 4, we're going to have to ask ourselves some questions about what to do with this. But it had already been determined in the law that no Ammonite, no Moabite could be entered into the assembly of Israel. And these men took these wives who couldn't ever be considered members of their church, so to speak. Number three, marriage to a Moabite seems to have been forbidden by law. Very explicitly. Let me read this in Deuteronomy 7. Verses three through four say, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Now, for those of you who might know that passage or flip back there, Moab was not specifically mentioned in that listing. Who was listed were the seven Canaanite nations. Okay, that's what was specifically said in Deuteronomy 7, that they may not marry with those seven Canaanite nations. But later Old Testament reference to this exact prohibition implies that Moab would also have been in mind with this command. So Ezra, verses, chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 says, The people of Israel have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites... The Egyptians and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So it sounds as though at least later Old Testament writers considered Moab part of those nations that would be prohibited for marriage. The fourth, fourth reason I think that perhaps this is not a good thing is because of the words being used here. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These, these two sons, took Moabite wives. This word took in Hebrew is only used exactly like this nine times in the Old Testament. And every time it implies a strong negative connotation. Every time. For examples, the other places that it shows up are marriage by abduction, by stealing women and marrying them, is taking women. Uh, kings who have taken wives and concubines as part of a harem. Bigamous marriage. When Israelites took women from other nations to be their wives. It always is that word when they're talking about the kind of marriage that the author means judgment. The last reason is that it appears that these women were barren. They lived there about 10 years, and while it doesn't say at what point they were married, were they married at the very end of the ninth year, so they were almost to year 10, and maybe they just hadn't had a chance to, to get pregnant yet, that's possible, but the, the fact that it says they took Moabite wives, and then after it, it says they lived there about 10 years, would imply that there at least could be an amount of time, a duration taking place, and certainly a major point of chapter one is that there is no heir for Elimelech and for Naomi. Under the old covenant, that was a sign for God's judgment for disobedience. It was explicitly said that in the old covenant day. That's an implication, but perhaps. There's at least five reasons why it might be that the author is helping us to see that these aren't God-honoring, wonderful people, faithful to the end, suffering and sacrificing in order to please God. They might not be that kind of family. Verse 5 continues. 
and both Mahlon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Some commentators think this might be a sixth reason to think that they were under judgment. They died in their youth. Both of them died. That's possible too, perhaps. But crippling tragedy strikes. And it'd be hard to imagine a more devastating loss than this. We're going to have to return back to the idea of loss in a, in a few minutes as, as things continue to carry on for Naomi. One thing to draw to attention here, though, is that it says, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In other words, this story picks up on Naomi as the one through whom we experience these events. It doesn't say that the other two women lost their husbands. It says that she lost her sons. It's, it's, it's putting the onus on Naomi, this Israelite, the one who had left from Bethlehem, gone to Moab. Her husband had passed away. Her sons had passed away. The author wants us to see her in chapter 1 as the primary player, the one that we see ourselves through, perhaps even, or in. This present distress that she's enduring here pointed also to a future without hope. We're going to see that more and more as we continue on. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Naomi gets good news from home. She hears of the famine that had been taking place there, that presumably had been taking place for about that 10-year period of time, has now ended. And she can return back to her people there. So she had been in exile out in Moab. She had been a sojourner out there. But it looks like now she can go back there. Might as well at least go back amongst her own people as she's enduring the kind of loss that she's experienced. So she gets up and she gets ready to go. She takes her daughters-in-law with her. At least begins to take them with her. I want you to notice here also that the, the famine ending is attributed to God. She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord had done this. God showed up. God provided food. Now, the word for food here is actually literally the word bread. Lahem. Does that sound familiar? Lahem? Beth Lahem is where she comes from, which means house of bread. So the start of the story is that the house of bread is breadless. They have to flee. They have to go out of Bethlehem to try to find food source somewhere else. They go to Moab to find food. But now that bread basket, Bethlehem, the house of bread, is now being filled again by God. He's providing food for his people. She hears about this, and she desires to go back underneath the provision of God for his people there. God sovereignly works here and draws Naomi home. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. She said goodbye, she blesses them, and she expects that they're going to leave, that they're going to go home now. So it looks like... They got ready to go, and in the process of going, she's, she's thinking through in her mind, okay, we're going back there, but there's nothing back there for them. 
I might find something. There's nothing back there for them. It's not going to be good there for them. Maybe she has in mind that these Moabites, they're not even, they're not virgins. They've already even had a husband already before, and that was a significant thing in the Old Testament. They're Moabitesses, so bringing them along might not be good for them. There's nothing good ahead for them. Even if there was anything that could offer relief for Naomi, she thinks about what might be good for them and says, no, don't, don't come. I changed my mind. Don't, there's nothing there for you. Go back, go back home. She sends them home for a reason. She hopes that they might remarry. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. That's the hope. Go home and get remarried. Go home and, go home and make a family. Find someone to watch out for you. This highlights the expectation or the need in this day for marriage in the Old Testament. They would be best off if they got married. You, gotta, you need to go get married. You need a man to watch out for you and to provide for you, to care for you. This is a hard world without a man to watch for you. This is not just a cultural expectation. Like, well, of course you get married. This is what was really needed. It's in the best interest of these women. This idea is going to come back into play in this next chapter, next couple chapters very clearly. That the idea of these women who had been married no longer with someone to watch over and protect them would have left them potentially destitute. That's a significant thing, and it's going to come, come back and back. We're going to have to revisit this again and again. Please go back. This would be better for you. Go, go find a husband. Go find someone to take care of. You go back to your mother's house. Be cared for. Be provided for. And they said to her, this is Orpah and Ruth now responding to Naomi's plea for them to leave her. And they said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Orpah and Ruth here decline her offer to leave her. But Naomi pleads with them again, They first say, no, 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 we're just going to go with you. And she goes, no, don't, don't. Are you thinking this through? Are you processing this? Do you know what this means for you? If you come back with me, there's nothing for you there. Even if somehow I were to have a child, I would have two more sons for you. Even somehow tonight I were to get pregnant. There's no way. Are you going to wait around all that time for them to be marriageable to then somehow take care of you? Now this plea, in this plea, there seems to be a reference to what the Old Testament calls Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage. It was an old covenant responsibility placed on a man to marry and bear children with his deceased brother's widow. Actually, the word leverite comes from the Latin word meaning brother-in-law. Your brother-in-law should step in for you and marry, marry the wife of the deceased brother. I'm going to read that passage because this is going to come back again in the next couple chapters. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was not compulsory, it was not mandatory, but it was expected 
that the nearest marriageable family relative would step in and redeem the wife, the widow of the deceased relative. Scripture only provides two examples of this actually taking place. One of them is in Genesis 38, where Onan actually said, okay, I'll be the husband, but he refused to actually bear children. And the other example is here in Ruth, where we're going to see in upcoming chapters. But Naomi continues her plea here. Girls, go home, go home. I don't have anything for you. You're not going to be okay here. You're not going to be taken care of. I don't have sons to give you. There's no one else that can step in here for you now. But look at how they reply. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. This is the second time now they've, just, they've stopped on the roadside and they just wept together. They just cried together because of what they've all endured. All of them have had loss. While the loss is coming from the experience of, the perspective of Naomi, that's how it's being told, all of them are weeping from what has happened in their lives. The turn that it has taken that there's no way they could have expected could go down. This is three hardcore losses at the same time or over the course of a not very long period of time. Not just the loss of one, not two, but even three. And they're all reeling from this loss. And they weep again. The thought of leaving one another is yet another part that adds to this tragedy for them. But Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and she went back home. She kissed her goodbye. Now you note the author doesn't provide any judgment on what Orpah does here, which is common to not provide it Judgment here, like we said before, it's a descriptive story. It's not prescribing. This is how everyone should always act in every situation here. It's just telling what happened. But she's not judged for it. There's no point back to her as being wicked for her selfishness or her unwillingness to sacrifice. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth sticks around. And she said, see, this is Naomi speaking again, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go, go with her. Go return to Moab. That's your home. I'm returning to Bethlehem, but you return to Moab. That's where you come from. You come from there. Go back. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Gods. Naomi expects that Ruth should return to her gods. What do you do with that? Moab was not a monotheistic nation. Mono, one theistic God. One God. Israel is one God. Moab wasn't. Moab was what we might call henotheistic, which means that they acknowledged many gods while they primarily primarily worshipped just one. Chiefly, they worshipped the god Chemosh. The Moabites were even called the people of Chemosh. Numbers 21, 29 says, Woe to you, O Moab, you are undone, O people of Chemosh. 1 Kings eleven seven says that Solomon, in his folly, built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. That's what Chemosh is called. These people were considered one with this false god, a, a kind of false god that demanded 
probably child sacrifice, certainly human sacrifice. We see an event in which a king of Moab sacrifices his own son on the walls of a city in order to get his God to help him win the battle. This is Moab. Naomi sends Ruth back, tries to send her back. She's already sent Orpah back, expects that now Ruth will go back and go worship her gods. Naomi had already invoked Yahweh's blessings on these two women. I don't know if you noted that earlier, but she already did that. She pointed just a couple of verses earlier. She specifically asked God to bless them. She says that God, the Lord, will provide for you. She asked that God would bless them in the place that they would go to. May the Lord deal kindly with you, she says in verse 8. The Lord grant that you may find rest. The Lord, this is Yahweh, God of Israel, grant that you may find rest, each one of you in the house of her husband. That's what she says about what she expects of her Lord, Yahweh God. She invokes blessings from Yahweh, but at the same time, she expects them to return home and worship other gods. I want you to remember, this is not a period of time in which there was great faith exhibited in Israel. In fact, over and over and over again, the people in Israel during the time of the judges were turning to false gods. She even blamed God for all of her struggles. God has a heavy hand against me, she says. We are to understand that all of Naomi's ideas and actions are recorded but not approved. It'd be hard to see this as a good thing for Naomi. It's almost certainly meaning that she would expect something that's not good to come about for her sending them back. Let's pause for a quick moment to review Naomi's loss. There was a famine at her home. She was from Bethlehem. This famine was so bad that it drove them to a foreign land where she and her family would be exiles. In other words, she didn't leave her home because she had a job change. She didn't leave because she was heading towards better weather or wanted to live near the grandkids. Lots of reasons why people move today. She left because she literally couldn't feed herself there. It's the first thing we know that Naomi experienced in loss. After she gets there, her husband passes away. She's a widow. She's a widow in a foreign land. Again, we don't know the time frame within that 10-year period in Moab. We don't know how long it was that she was with her husband, how quickly she lost him, but she's missing home, gone from home. She's in this foreign landscape. Her husband passes away. Can you imagine? Not only that, she loses her children. Not just her children, but sons, those who were who were given the responsibility to care for their parents in old age. And not just two of her many sons, but her only two sons. There's no other children mentioned. It says over and over that she had two sons. That's what she had. And they're gone. Everyone in her immediate family is gone. She loses her husband. She loses her sons. She has... She's nothing. Not only that, but there's no heirs. It's not even as though she has grandkids now that someday might grow up and be healthy and strong enough to be able to provide for and care for her and for their mothers in their old age. Whether the women were actually barren or they just had not yet had kids, the point is there was nothing. She had nothing to go on. All she had was these two women, her daughters-in-law, who were there with her through this struggle, who wept with her on multiple occasions. She expects a life of destitution. Future chapters are going to indicate this more clearly. That she did not expect prosperity and for the people to take her in, warmly welcome her and provide for her. 
She did not expect she was going to go back to a particular home in which she'd be cared for entirely. She expected poverty for the rest of her days. She pleads with her daughters-in-law to go. One has already left. She's got one left, one good thing left remaining. And she expects that one, that second daughter-in-law, to leave her too. But what happens next begins to shine a ray of light on this whole situation. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So after multiple pleadings, after reason, after reason, after reason for Ruth to go back home, even Orpah's going. Ruth says, nope, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. She says, I'm going with you. I'm going to lodge where you lodge. Your home's going to be my home. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Ruth wasn't running to Moab, with, or to, to Israel, to Bethlehem with the Moabite flag sticking outside because, oh, look, I'm, I'm this still. She's going and saying, I'm, a, I'm one of you now. I'm not who I was. My identity is no longer in what that was. I'm new. I'm with you. I give up all that was behind. Where you die, I will die. In other words, this is a lifelong thing. She says, I'm going to help you get settled in. I'll be there for a, for a few months or years just to make sure things are good, and I'll go back. You can... Send correspondence for me if you need. The expectation is this is a permanent change. Forevermore, I'm going to be with you. And the fact that she doesn't mention anything other than live with you, be in with your people, be one of your people, worship and be with your God, the only other thing she mentions is death. When we say marriage vows, even sometimes this exact line oftentimes makes it into many marriage covenant vows. People want to point back to this kind of self-sacrificial, past identity forsaking, new life, new family reality. And it's actually, it's beautiful, isn't it? But you notice she doesn't say in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, it's just the bad. Seems that Ruth would expect not only a permanent commitment here, no going back, but she doesn't expect a prosperous future and she's virtually giving up on it in order to go with Naomi. This is true loyalty. This is true commitment. Yeah, ever had a friend like that? I've heard somebody who says, I'm staying with you. I don't care what happens. Whatever happens, I'm with you. If you die, then I'm gonna die. If, if we're there together, I will stay there with you. Nothing but death is gonna part me from you. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. This is a, God is my witness. She invokes a curse on herself if she doesn't follow through with this. This isn't a lighthearted thing that you might expect for her to change her mind a few further miles down the road. Your God will be my God and your God my God. We'd have to presume that she had an acknowledgement of the Lord, of Yahweh, of the God of the Israelites that she married into that family. You have to expect that. Naomi makes multiple references to the Lord, to Yahweh. Of course, there'd be something in their mind. We don't know if, if Ruth had previously, prior to this already, in her heart said, no more false gods, only true God, or if it happens here. 
But what we do know is here was a point of decision. No more any of that. Just this. This last week I was talking to some, uh, some family at the church here about how um, I come from a background where there was a lot of kind of altar call type of Christianity where, where the way that you were saved is by a particular prayer at a particular time. You raise your hand, you walk up, and then bam, you're saved, you're good, you're set. And I'd seen that abused many times in many ways. And so I, I kind of overreacted, I think, a bit in that sometimes and pressed out the idea that it's important for a person to have a point at which they say, no more old, only new for me. No more false gods, only true God for me. That's important. Has there been a point in your life where you said this? I don't want that anymore. I don't want what my old life was. I give up all of it. Your God will be my God, Christian brothers and sisters. If you haven't done that, you need to do what Ruth did. You need to cry out to God and you need to say, you need to declare, no more of that. You are now my God. You who are, well, you are who I will worship. No going back till death parts me from you. I will die as a believer, as a Christian now, not as anything else. Ruth makes this claim. She makes this statement. Naomi gave up arguing. She saw that she was determined to go with her. She said no more. Here are the big ideas of this story that we're going to see play out more and more as we wrap up in the next several weeks. Each chapter and phase and story is taking place here. We already now see tragedy, sacrifice, and the giving of a glimmer of hope. Naomi endured great tragedy, but because of Ruth's self-sacrificial nature, she will not have to be alone. Naomi is not going to be alone. Ruth is going to be there with her. Throughout this book, we're going to see three really key things. There's going to be other little parts there as well, but three main ones that we're going to see. I want to bring all three of those to your attention right now before we close this morning. First is this. God is sovereign in and over suffering. In verse 6 here, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. He shows up to end the famine. In verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And even though Naomi might not be thinking all the way rightly about this, she's got something right. She knows that God is in control. God could have stopped all these if nothing else, right? And yet all of it happened. The Lord brought the famine. He brought relief. That's the way the whole Old Testament talks about God. That's the way the whole New Testament talks about God. From beginning to end, Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. God is sovereign over even the worst possible things that happen in our lives. God's not a God out of control. You guys know I use this language all the time. There's no angel rushing into the throne room of God. God, you won't believe what happened. Tragedy struck. Oh, that's so awful to hear. That's not our God. He's not learning this new information about the stuff that happens. He's not going, oh, if only, if only I could have done something. God is sovereign even over the most incredible, even awful, even terrible situations. God has a plan, and God is working. And we are certainly going to see that all throughout the book of Ruth, that God takes the worst possible trials, struggles, and he turns those things into a story of redemption. You all experience trial. Each of us experiences different degrees of loss. 
God is in control. He is sovereign in, over, through that suffering, and there is a plan. First is God is sovereign over suffering. Second, God's grace is given to unworthy people. Unworthy people. We've already observed several things about Naomi that are not necessarily admirable. Maybe exactly the opposite. Maybe things that she should not have done. This is one of the reasons I spent some time arguing that I think these men marrying these women was not God-honoring. It was exactly the opposite of what the law had articulated clearly. It wasn't even a conviction issue for them. It was clear, I think. And spoiler alert, God's going to rescue Naomi. And God is going to rescue Ruth. And this whole story is a story of redemption, of God showing up and offering mercy and grace. Why? Why is he going to do this? Why is God going to show up? Why is he going to redeem these women? Why is he going to make it better than it possibly could have been imagined by these ladies this time? Why? Well, some people think that the only time God will or even can show up is when a person lives worthy enough to get God's attention. That is almost the exact opposite of what the Old and New Testament teach us about the nature of God and the good news, the gospel. Even in the Old Testament, the message that begins to be clear from the very beginning is that God shows up and redeems and helps, protects an unworthy people. Naomi's an Israelite. That's the perspective we're seeing this through, right? And we're, she's going back to the land of Israel and the rest of the dealings are gonna take place there in Israel. Listen to what God says about Israel in Deuteronomy 9. I'm gonna read verses four and six. This is, this is why God chose Israel. Why, out of all the nations of the world, God said, Israel, you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord God has thrust them out before you, uh, the Canaanite nations he's going to deliver them from. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. So when the Israelites were asking, the little child tug on his daddy's rope, Daddy, Daddy, why? why is it that God chose Israel? Oh, because we're so righteous, son. Time and time again in the Old Testament, we see that Israel was so wicked over and over and over and over and over again that even the other nations, Moab, Assyria, Babylon, Syria, they looked, they looked at them and they said, whoa, those, those guys break even our laws. God didn't choose Israel because they were the righteous ones. He didn't choose them because they were big. They were the, they were the biggest in numbers, so it's just, I, can, I can display things bigger and better. He said the exact opposite. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of all peoples. I chose you because I love you, and I made a promise to Abraham. In your trial, God rescues because he is good. Because he is good. God is not the kind of God who's waiting. Man, if only you would do X, then, uh, then all this would be solved. It's all in you. The solution is in you. The way out of your situation is you. The relief in trial is you. It's always the opposite of that. God saves. God heals. God redeems. God protects. Because God, not because of us. We argued in Ephesians chapter 1 
about a year ago, we were in Ephesians and walking through that book, that God firmly roots salvation not in us, but in himself. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what you do. You just believe in his grace. You believe what he's done. And for a reason, that we would not invest our energies and our life into thinking, I can solve this, I can fix this, I can make myself worthy. When we read through the book of Ruth, we ought not get to the end and go, ah, so the way to get God to redeem, help, save, protect us is by doing all the things that Naomi does or Ruth does. That's not what we see in this book. We see God showing up and taking care of and redeeming an unworthy people. So God is sovereign in, over, through our suffering. God's grace is given to unworthy people. And lastly, in this chapter, already in chapter one, we see a glimpse of Christ. We're gonna see Jesus all over this book. The Old Testament tells many stories in which there's a clear, singular hero character who displays a good quality that makes him or her the hero. All over, we see one person who does something significant and we see a quality that's displayed in that. These are patterns of Christ. These are, these are types of Christ in the Old Testament. Here already, we're seeing in chapter one, just in chapter one, Ruth is demonstrating and on display as a type of Christ. She is the faithful one who refuses to abandon Naomi, even in the midst of this trial, even when she's being pushed away. Hebrews 13, 5 13.6 will say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 5 will say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This attributes this to God and the speaking of Jesus to the people. I'm not going anywhere. You can't get rid of me. Romans 8.38-39 through 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus will never abandon you. And whatever your trial, your, your circumstances, your suffering, even when you are being disciplined by God as a result of sin, which the Bible does say happens to us, we are not abandoned. We are not forsaken by our Lord. Ruth gives us a picture of this. She begins to display this. Later, Ruth will be the recipient of a Christ-like character redeeming and saving her. But in chapter one, Ruth displays for us something that we will see ultimately, finally fulfilled in Jesus. My hope as we walk through books like this is in part, I want you just to have a knowledge of the information. I do, I want that for you. I want you to be able to lead Bible studies. I would like for you to be able to, after reading, listening through one sermon series through Ruth, to feel confident, to help lead a Bible study with a bunch of people in your life that you know, believer or non-believer, and know the kinds of things that be helpful in the texts. I'd love to just help prompt you in that way. I'd like you to just, just in your mind. But far more than that, I desire that your heart would be knit to God, that you would see Jesus show up time and time again. And anything good here is because God is good. You are not deserving of God's rescue, even in the midst of trial. But God's love and grace for you is displayed throughout this entire story. And I pray that you'll see that more and more as we continue on throughout this series. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I, I can only use words to try to describe trial, suffering, struggle. But I know that loss is so real, tragedy is so felt, 
that mere words could never describe it. Father, I ask that you would send your spirit to do a work in the hearts of people that we would be able to see how it is that you display yourself through these stories. Thank you, Lord, for doing that through this woman, Ruth, who refuses to abandon even when pushed away. God, we, we, have, we try to push you away all the time in our lives. So often by our deeds, sometimes by our words, we try to push you out. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder that you, if, if, if a woman could do this in the Old Testament, could, could show this kind of self-sacrificial, can't push me out, loyalty and love for someone, how much more do you show this to your children? We thank you, Lord, that this is true. We pray that we'd be served by it as we study through this book of Ruth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.